We turn now to the scriptures as we uh, finish this morning our study of the book of Ezekiel. So I invite you to turn to uh, chapter 47 of the book of Ezekiel. If you don't have your uh, Bible with you, you can find this on page 869. And as you're turning, if you have a cell phone on, I invite you to turn it off. I begin reading portion from chapter 47, beginning at verse 1. This is in the midst of a, a visionary experience that the prophet has. And there is this angelic tour guide who is showing him the various aspects of this vision, which includes a, a massive picture of a temple. The man brought me back to the entrance of the temple. And I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east. And the water was flowing from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through the water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, Son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah where it enters the sea. When it empties into the sea, the water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to uh, in Eglayim. There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds like the fish of the great sea. But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food. And their leaves for healing. This is what the sovereign Lord says. These are the boundaries by which you are to divide the land for an inheritance among the twelve tribes of Israel. With two portions for Joseph. You are divided equally among them. Because I swore with uplifted hand to give it to your forefathers. This land will become your inheritance. Now moving to verse 21. You are to distribute this land among yourselves according to the tribes of Israel. You are to allot it as an inheritance for yourselves and for the aliens who have settled among you and who have children. You are to consider them as native-born Israelites. Along with you, they are to be allotted an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. In whatever tribe the alien settles, there you are to give him his inheritance, declares the Sovereign Lord. And then after a description of the city and in the midst of the land, in the very last verse of this book, we read, 
and the name of the city from that time. In the film Grand Canyon, an immigration attorney breaks out of a traffic jam and attempts to bypass it. His route takes him along streets that seem progressively darker and more deserted. And then the predictable bonfire of the vanity's nightmare. His expensive car stalls on one of those alarming streets whose teenage guardians favor expensive guns and sneakers. The attorney does manage to phone for a tow truck. But before it arrives, five young street toughs surround his disabled car and threaten him with considerable bodily harm. Then, just in time, the tow truck shows up and its driver, an earnest, uh, genial man, begins to hook up the disabled car. The driver takes the leader of the group aside and attempts a five-sentence introduction to metaphysics. Man, he says, the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. That's the opening of Cornelius Plantinga's thought-provoking book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, which is a book about sin. Everything is supposed to be different than what it is here. Don't you sometimes feel that way? This is a broken world. It's a fallen world. This world is not the way it's supposed to be. Marriages aren't supposed to break up. Our political leaders aren't supposed to lie to us. Hackers are not supposed to vandalize our computers. Bullies are not supposed to intimidate our children at school. Life is not supposed to be like that. But why do we think that? How is it that we have a sense of what the norm ought to be? How how life should be, but isn't? I mean, where does that sense of the way things are supposed to be come from? I mean, it certainly doesn't come from any sort of scientific research. Science can only describe what is, not what ought to be. I mean, is it somehow simply wishful thinking? We can wish that things weren't like the way they are, but we really have no reason to believe that they should or ever will be any different. So where does this universal sense that this world is not the way it's supposed to be come from? After all, as C.S. Lewis observes, uh, fish don't complain at the sea for being wet. But if they did... Would that fact itself not strongly suggest that they had not always been or would not always be purely aquatic creatures? If I find myself in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, Lewis wrote, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You see, I suggest that our sense that things are not the way they're supposed to be reflects the fact that we are indeed created To live in a different kind of world. And we have a vague moral memory of the way that God created things to be. Life lived in his peace, his shalom, the shalom of God. That's why we are so dissatisfied with the way things are now. 
And that's why we think that things in this world are broken. Even though none of us has experienced any other kind of world. We simply feel it intuitively. The world is not what it's supposed to be. But is life in this world, in all its brokenness and pain and heartache and injustice, is it simply the way it always will be? Will things ever be different? Will we ever enter into the the, the fullness of of the world of, of God's shalom, God's peace? Will we ever experience life as it's supposed to be? You see, that's a, a fundamental question, isn't it? Some people think that that kind of world is really just around the corner. It, it, it's, it's within our power to bring about. With, with just a little more education, a little more technological progress, a little more economic prosperity, we can do it. We can transform this world and we can make it what it ought to be. But the Bible's not so optimistic. You see, for according to the Bible, the problem with the world is not out there. It's in here. It's the problem of the human heart. And that's expressed famously in a response to a question that was once posed by the Times of London. What's wrong with the world? The editors ask its readers. One response printed the next week answered the question like this. Dear sir, I am. Signed, G.K. Chesterton. I am. That's right. The problem is within us all. You see, we've all been corrupted by our own sin. Human nature has been curved in upon itself. Our biggest problem is moral, beginning with our own moral response to God. That's the story of the Bible. God created Adam and Eve in his image as persons capable of loving him and each other. And they lived in his presence in a good place, a garden. And the Bible tells us that they were naked and they were unashamed. The world was as it was supposed to be. But our first ancestors chose to go their own way. They disobeyed God. They made themselves God. And as a result, their relationship with God was broken and they were cast from that garden. And the world came under God's curse and things were no longer the way they were supposed to be. But will things ever be put right? Is there any hope for this broken world? The Bible says, yes, there is hope. But that hope is not found in our efforts. It's found in God's grace. And the history recounted in the Bible shows without a doubt that human beings cannot redeem themselves or this world. The Lord God revealed himself to Israel. He gave them his perfect law, the blueprint for a new society, one of peace, one of justice. But they couldn't put it into practice. Human nature was too corrupt, too perverted, too depraved. And if this world was to be fixed, the Lord God would have to do it himself. And that, you see, is the promise that the prophet Ezekiel offers his people in the midst of their despair as exiles in Babylon. He declares that God is going to make things right. He is going to redeem his chosen people and he is going to restore his fallen creation. 
Ezekiel first presents the truth about their own moral condition before a holy God. The Israelites deserved their exile into Babylon. They had broken their marriage covenant with the Lord. They deserved a divorce. But then when they acknowledged that truth and that truth became clear to him, then the Lord gave them a word of grace. The Lord would redeem. The Lord would restore. This would not always be a broken world, for the Lord himself would fix it by his grace. He would redeem a people for himself and he would bring his people into a good land and bless them abundantly. And this, you see, is where the book of Ezekiel ends in the glorious vision of chapters 40 to 48. Now, as I said last week, this is one of the closest places in the whole Old Testament to getting a picture of heaven. Or perhaps better, a picture of the kingdom of God come to earth. The last time we looked at the, the, the first seven chapters of the of this section, which, which focused on the new temple and its worship, which was a, a statement of the fact that, that this new redeemed world would be one in which God would dwell with his people. He would live in their midst. He would rule over them from his royal throne. And for Ezekiel, the temple was the visible symbol of that reality. Well, this morning in the last two chapters, Ezekiel fills out this picture of this redeemed world with three images, a river, a land and a city. And in the process, he gives us a picture of the world as it's supposed to be. Well, first, let's consider the way Ezekiel speaks of the land at the end of chapter 47, chapter 47, verse 13. This is what the sovereign Lord says. These are the boundaries by which you are to divide the land for an inheritance among the 12 tribes of Israel with two portions for Joseph. You are to divide it equally among them because I swore with uplifted hand to give it to your fathers. This land will become your inheritance. And Ezekiel goes on to describe the boundaries of the territory given to each of the 12 tribes of Israel from north to south. And it looks Something like this. There you see it. The division of the land. Now, if the description of the temple was what we call theological architecture, this allocation of the land can be described as theological geography. Now, I say that for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, the, the tribe's allotments were not those as historically given in the book of Joshua. For example, you can see that uh, Judah is north of Benjamin, not the way it was originally. And second, the east-west boundaries are just straight across, in a sense almost arbitrary, uh, unconnected to the actual topography of the land of Palestine. This is a schematic model rather than a, a Google map. So what then are the theological messages of this geographical vision? Well, first, we see a clear commitment to equality. Chapter 47, verse 14, you are to divide it equally among them. In this redeemed world, there will be a, a fundamental fairness in the distribution of wealth. No one will have too much. No one will have too little. In such a world, there's no place for jealousy or for envy. And secondly, we see a, a remarkable call for inclusion. You see, whereas in the law of Moses, uh, resident aliens uh, were excluded from owning property in Israel. In this vision, land ownership was to include resident aliens with their families living within the tribal boundaries. 
Verse 22, you are to allot it as an inheritance for yourselves and for the aliens who have settled among you and who have children. You are to consider them as native-born Israelites. Along with you, they are to be allotted an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. Now, what Ezekiel sees here, you see, is new. Though Isaiah the prophet had alluded to it back in Isaiah chapter 56, verse 6, Foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship him. All who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it. All who hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And isn't that just what Jesus spoke of when he cleansed the temple? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And doesn't that anticipate what Paul discovered in the gospel? Which he talks about in Ephesians chapter 2 and 3, where he says, through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. Members together of one body, sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. You see, in the Old Testament, the land was Israel's inheritance. In other words, it was it was God's gift to them as his firstborn son. And to the landless exiles in Babylon, the promise of regaining that inheritance would have been a great encouragement. It would have been a precious hope. They would finally enter into that rest, which the people in Joshua's day sought in vain when they uh, were victorious in taking the land. But in the New Testament, you see, we become sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And our glorious inheritance is not found in the form of a a land in Palestine, but in a divine kingdom that is not of this world. And we enter God's rest by faith and our inheritance is sure. Peter says it is kept in heaven for us until that day when that heaven comes to earth. And it will be a kingdom that includes those from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And third, Ezekiel's theological geography in the distribution of the land points to a pervading sanctity at the very heart and core of the whole nation. You see, it is a God-centered community. That's expressed through this uh, central portion right here called sacred portion, doesn't belong to any of the tribes of Israel. It's kind of like our District of Columbia, a piece of land carved out in the middle of the 13 American states. And like the District of Columbia, it was to be the seat of government. But not a government of the people through elected representatives. No, it was to be a a government of God himself. The Lord will be their king. And this central strip of land was to be a holy space in Israel, a sacred portion that belonged to Yahweh, the Lord himself. And we read in chapter 48, verse 10, in the center of this sacred portion will be the sanctuary of the Lord. You see, Ezekiel gives us a tangible picture of the world as it is supposed to be. It is a God-centered, God-governed world of equality, of gracious inclusion, and of sanctity. Now, let's take a closer look at this sacred portion, which is in the middle of the land, 
Now, in the center of that sacred portion is, it looks something like this, as Ezekiel describes it. It's divided into three strips, you see here. Uh, the, the first strip is a place for the Levites, who kind of were involved in the upkeep of the temple. The center is for the Zadokites, which are the priests, the priests who actually minister in the temple itself. And there is the temple in the center of this sacred space. And then in the lower part, in the south, is a strip of land with farmland on either side. And in the middle is a city, a city. Now, it's clear that Ezekiel's description of this city is as artificial and schematic as his description of the land itself. For it's a perfect square and it comprises 25,000 cubic, uh, 25,000 square cubits. And it's contained within a, a piece of land here, which is 25,000 cubits on a side. And it's in the center of the whole sacred portion of that land, which is in the center of the whole of the, of the, the nation. So it has a, a, a kind of artificial sense. As one commentator remarked, Ezekiel is a symbolic theologian, not a futuristic city planner. But I want to point out two things about this city. First, we're told in chapter 48, verse 19, that the workers from the city who farm it will come from all the tribes of Israel. And later in the chapter, we read that the gates of the city will be named for the 12 tribes of Israel. In other words, this city functions as a visible symbol of the unity of the entire restored people of God. It's a picture of the new community living in perfect harmony in the shalom, the, the peace of God. We might call it a community of grace and truth. And notice also that this city is distinct from the temple. And later in the chapter, uh, we, we, the temple is outside the city, you see, to the north. And, and in other words, the city is not simply a rebuilt Jerusalem. In the historical Jerusalem, the temple was inside the city. But in fact, the, the name Jerusalem is never used anywhere in Ezekiel 40 to 48. Instead, we're told in the very last verse of the book, that the name of the city from that time on will be the Lord is there. Yahweh Shema. God's presence will be with his people. I mean, isn't this the way it's supposed to be? Isn't this what the Jewish exiles in Babylon longed for? God's presence with them. And isn't this what we want ultimately to experience the presence of God? We want to know not simply that God is out there beyond the stars. We want to know that God is here, that he's with us in the trials and struggles of our lives. And in Ezekiel's vision of the world as it's supposed to be, the name of the city from that time on will be the Lord is there. Yahweh Shammah. But you might ask, how can the Lord be there in the city? Didn't the Lord dwell in the temple? As we saw last week, isn't that the place where God dwells? And isn't his presence there protected? Wasn't the temple like this huge fortress guarding the holiness of God from any defilement? The Lord is holy. He's separate. He's transcended. He's beyond us. How can he also be there in the city? How can he also be here 
in our lives? Well, to answer that question, we need to look at the third picture that Ezekiel gives us. Perhaps the most graphic in the entire vision. It's the picture of a river. It's a river unlike any we could ever imagine. So we go back to the beginning of chapter 47. Where we find a description of this miraculous river. First, consider its source. Chapter 47, verse 1, the man, his divine tour guide brought me back to the entrance of the temple and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. And then look at the unusual flow of this river. It gets progressively deeper and deeper. Then he brought me out through the north gate, led me around to the outside, to the outer gate facing east. And the water was flowing from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits, about fifteen hundred feet. And then he led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in a river that no one could cross. And finally, look at its effect. Verse six. He asked me, son of man, do you see this? And he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. We learn in verse 12 that these were fruit trees. But they were unlike any fruit trees that Ezekiel had ever seen before. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. And then in verse 8 we read, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, that is the desert region, to the east, where it enters the sea. Now, here he's referring to the Dead Sea. Now, the Dead Sea is called that for good reason. The Jordan River flows from the north into the Dead Sea, but nothing flows out of it. Its water is simply evaporated by the heat of the desert sun. And that results in an incredible buildup of salt and other minerals, making it a poisonous environment for any marine life. And also, because it's so full of salt, it becomes very dense. So you can actually float on the top of it very easily. That's actually me floating on the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea. But look what happens when the water from this river comes in contact with the noxious water of the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore. All along the shore, there will be places for their nets. The fish will be of many kinds like the fish of the Great Sea. That is the Mediterranean Sea. Now this, you see, is the way the world is supposed to be. The desert will abound with fruit trees, constantly yielding the fruit. The Dead Sea will, will come alive with a bounty of fish. This river, where the river flows, everything will live. It's a river of life. 
It's a river that flows from the temple of God near the altar. God himself, you see, he's the source of life. And the altar is where our sin is atoned for. And we're reconciled to him so that his life can now flow into our lives. Now, it may seem meager at first, this this flow of water from God's throne, a mere trickle, a tiny stream. As Jesus said, a king, the kingdom of God can look like a mustard seed, like a, a bit of yeast that you put into a lump of dough. But it can multiply and infuse the whole loaf and it can grow into a massive tree. It can become a mighty river of God's blessing. You see, this is a picture of the life giving presence of God going out into the world. The Lord dwells in his temple, but he's not confined there. He is both up here, up there and down here. He is holy, but he is also personal. And by his grace, he makes his presence known in the world, bringing healing and restoration and life. Now, we, we simply cannot look at this picture of this miraculous life-giving river without thinking of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we saw last week, he is the true temple. He is the meeting place of God and man. He is the temple of God. He is the source of the water of life. Now, Jesus said to that Samaritan woman by the well in John chapter 4, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Or in John chapter 7, Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. You see, Jesus is the source of that life, real life, eternal life, abundant life. I have come that you may have life, life in all its abundance, he says. And that's what Ezekiel's river Flowing from the temple, giving life wherever it goes. That's what the river points to. Jesus Christ. You see, he is the river flowing from the temple of God. And where that river flows, everything will live. And now it's through us, his church, that that river continues to flow out into the world. You see, in Jesus Christ. We see the initial fulfillment of Ezekiel's vision of a land, of a city, and of a river. But I want you to see that in the final chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, we see an even greater depiction of its final consummation. There, John has a vision of a new heaven and a new earth. And John sees there a city, a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And he heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. In his vision. John doesn't see a temple in that city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. 
And then in chapter 22, verse 1, we read these words. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of truth, of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. You see, this is the fulfillment of God's plan for creation from the beginning. The human beings created in His image would act as His governing agents over His creation, ruling over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over the creatures that move along the ground. We will rule. And in ruling, we will participate in God's rule, living in a loving relationship with our Creator, blessed with His peace, His shalom, bringing glory to Him as we enjoy Him forever. This is the way the world is supposed to be. But the question is, will there ever be such a place? About 500 years ago, the Englishman Thomas More wrote a book of political satire depicting the society of an imaginary island that was perfect in every way. In the title of that book, Moore coined a new word in the English language. He called his book Utopia. Utopia. We use that word to describe a, a, a land of ideal perfection. But, but Moore chose that term because of its subtle ambiguity. You see, it formed a pun in Greek. The Greek word topia means place. But the prefix you is ambiguous. The prefix you could reflect the Greek word you, spelled E-U, which means good, as in eulogy or euphoria. But on the other hand, the prefix you could reflect the Greek word ou, spelled O-U, which means not or no. So Moore's utopia was a good place, but that good place is also no place. That is, it doesn't really exist. And that's the question from our passage that, that we're left with this morning, isn't it? Is the utopia the prophet presents really no place at all? Will such a world ever exist? And if it does, how would you get there? The Bible tells us that the answer to both those questions is found in Jesus Christ. You see, when Jesus Christ rose from the grave, He was given a new glorified body. A body fit for that new world, the kingdom of God. And the Bible declares that when He entered into that new world, He entered as our forerunner. He was the first fruits of, of more that, that was to come. He entered into that world in which there would be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain. And he promised that he had gone to prepare a place for us. 
that we might be with him. In fact, he promised to come again and bring that new world with him. Bringing heaven to earth, bringing evil to judgment, bringing his people into this new and glorious kingdom. That's what the resurrection of Jesus Christ means. And that new world, that utopia will become a reality. And Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And Jesus is the Son who, who calls us into sonship so that we might become heirs of that glorious inheritance, an inheritance kept for us and ready to be revealed with Christ in glory. You see, He is the temple. And in that holy city, He dwells. And that city will come down with Him. And He is the river who brings life wherever it flows. And we will be with Him and what a place that will be. In the words of Jonathan Edwards, every saint there is as a flower in that garden of God. And holy love is the fragrance and sweet odor that they all send forth and with which they fill the arbors of that paradise. Every soul there is as a note in some concert of delightful music that sweetly harmonizes with every other note and all together blend in the most rapturous strains in praising God and the Lamb forever. And so all help each other to their utmost to express the love of the whole society to its glorious Father and Head and to pour back love into the great fountain of love from which they are supplied and filled with love and blessedness and glory. And thus they will love and reign in love, and, and in that godlike joy that is its blessed fruit, such as eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, nor hath it entered into the heart of man in this world to conceive. And thus, in the full sunlight of that throne, enraptured with joys that are forever increasing and yet forever full, they shall live and reign with God and Christ forever and ever. Yes, there is such a place. And yes, there will be such a place. For Christ has died. Christ has risen. And Christ will come again. Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for this glorious truth. We know in our hearts this world is not what it's supposed to be. There's something in us that longs for something more that says to us, this is not our real home. We belong somewhere else. And here it is, set forth in your word. It's this kingdom of God. Lord, may we take this word of hope to heart. And not expect to find our ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction in this fallen world. It can't be found. Instead, Lord, may we give of ourselves and invest our hope and treasure in that world to come. Lord, may we long to be with you forever in that glorious new world, which you in your grace and your power will bring about. A glorious new world which you have already begun. In Jesus Christ. Lord, may we seek to prepare ourselves so that we might be fit for that place. Growing in love. 
growing in our worship of our great and glorious God. Lord, may we persevere in faith, holding firm to this hope. For we have the promise of Scripture. To the one who overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. He who overcomes will inherit all this. And I will be his God. And he will be my son. Lord, by your spirit, make this word live in our hearts. So that we might live for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.